Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where we explore what it means to be a well-rounded, happy, goal-crushing athlete. Every week, myself, sports journalist Molly Herford, and cycling coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford interview experts and chat through all of your training questions. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going? It's going well. Yeah, I can't complain. Things are moving along. Hopefully moving along. We are pre-recording this uh, just ahead of my race, but hopefully we are trucking home from Colorado triumphantly. Uh, I will feel another year older, so there's that. But 36 is going to be a good year. Calling it. And I mean, however the event goes, you are out there trying and trying to complete. Hopefully you completed. We'll see. I don't want to jinx you. (laughs) This is knocking on wood. Actually, I loved this. Uh, I was talking to a uh, coach. Actually, she was the woman who won the gravel or the Unbound XL, so the 350-miler, Kristen Legan. And she, I asked her if she had any mantra she repeated during the race. And I forget the exact phrase she told me, but it was basically she had like on her handlebars, like, insert her dog's name, doesn't care how it goes. Okay. There you go. And I, it might have been like slightly different than that, but the basic concept was like, my dog doesn't care how I did. He's just going to be really excited to see me at the finish line. And I was like, I'm, I'm putting that on my hand during this race. Like, DW is going to love you anyway. Okay. This is sort of like Ted Lasso's. Yeah. Uh, when uh, Roy's niece, uh, Phoebe, I'm actually doing well with names today. Usually I can't remember anyone's name. Uh, they asked, he's retiring from pro football. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then what do you think about Roy? And he swears a lot and takes me for ice cream. She doesn't even mention that he's a pro soccer player, which he thought was everything. Yeah. So there, yeah. You go. So there we go. DW loves me anyway. Um, but hopefully, hopefully, I also go with the final uh, quote from Ted Lasso season one, which is that I'm going to win the whole effing thing. So we yeah, shall no. see. So I know a bold pol- polarization there. In bold your, thing in your to pre record. I know one, ar- one arm's going to have effing win and the other <laughs> arm's going to have DW Can loves you anyway. Choose which sleeve you roll up, I guess. <laughs> right? Exactly. Uh, so we're, we're, we're working on both sides of the coin here. Either way, I'm going to be happy. Um, so today's episode, I'm actually really excited. Uh, we have my friend Tracy Carson. I'm actually super, super jazzed on this because Tracy was really helpful for this article. I was doing on wearables for Canadian cycling, we sort of got to talking and then she's been listening to our, my other podcast, the business of fitness, where I had Kelly Sam, who's the owner of the LA sweat team. And she had mentioned they had a Devo program that was opening up. Tracy heard the episode, got her application in on the last day and she's on the Devo team now. Wow! So yay, Tracy. Uh, she's actually been getting going on crit racing this past year and is is really enjoying it, which we get into a little bit. But anyway, Tracy is a public health researcher uh, who actually has a really deep focus on Red S, specifically for, for female athletes. She's done a lot of work in this field. Uh, she's now actually uh, you know a lead researcher at a university, and I'm blanking on the university, but we get into it at the beginning of this conversation uh, and what she's up to there, and she still is managing to race while starting this new job with a lot of work going on. Uh, but we really got into a lot of stuff around red S or relative energy deficiency in sport, uh, not just for women, for men, but we do get a lot into the women's side of the equation, uh, specifically around, you know, birth control and all that kind of stuff. So I do think this is an important episode, whether you're a man or a woman listening, I think there's still a ton of really relevant information. And if you are a guy listening, I also encourage you to listen, especially if you have an active partner who is a woman uh, who deals with any of this stuff, because I think uh, 
we've had a couple different women uh, scientists on the show talking about like women's issues. And we've had men kind of write in and say like, Oh, you know, thank you. I didn't really realize what my partner was going through. And it sure. actually like really helps them kind of understand why things are the way they are. Um, but we also get into a lot of fueling stuff for men too. We do talk about wearables a little bit, which is a topic that I'm incredibly interested in these days. Um, and you know, just what's, what's kind of coming down the pipe with research, especially into energy and athletes and overtraining and underfueling and all that fun stuff. But before we get into that, a quick word from our sponsor, we have AG1 from Athletic Greens. Holy moly, I'm so glad we've had this while we are on the road. Those travel packs are so helpful, especially when you're spending, you know, we drove for two and a half straight days, uh, which means not the most optimal, not a lot of salads getting eaten, or the ones that are getting eaten are pretty much romaine lettuce with a couple things thrown in as we're traveling through middle America. So it's really nice to have a one-stop supplement that has all of our probiotics, prebiotics, adaptogens, greens, of course, vitamins, minerals, basically all of the nutrients you need, none of the stuff you don't. It's NSF certified for sport, which means it's been checked. It has only the stuff it says it has. Uh, and I think it tastes great. Yeah. And it, it's something, you know, when we look at the number of supplements that some athletes, you know, will go looking for, I just saw the other day that uh, the placebo effect in, in athletes is actually higher. Uh, so we're more subject to, you know, thinking that this is the magic potion. So wacky enough, it even is higher if you know it's a placebo. Right. That's like the coolest part about that. Just right. saying. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So in, in that case, you know, it's one of these things where rather than spending a lot of time looking, you know, and buying and spending a ton of money on different supplements, trying to get something that, you know, is a safe, you're not going to have a, an adverse doping effect or some sort of side effect. Uh, and, and this is where we like AG1. Coming back to that Ted Lasso, you got to believe. And I sincerely do. I also like that it makes me drink a lot more water, especially in the morning, especially when we're on the road. And there's a lot of gas station coffee that I'm very excited about. I really do love my gas station coffee, but always start the day with my big bottle of AG1. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year one year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D, lovely little droplets, and five free travel packs, perfect for that next stage race you're doing with your first purchase. All you have to do is head to athleticgreens.com backslash H. Again, athleticgreens.com backslash H to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Cool. All right, let's get into this episode. Enjoy my chat with Tracy Carson. All right, Tracy, I'm so excited to be back talking to you this time for the Consummate yeah. Athlete Podcast. So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to chat. You have some great topics we're going to cover. So I'm so really excited. excited. So excited. So I first kind of came across you because we were kind of talking about wearables and what the research was mm -hmm. like around that. And you come at it from an angle that I don't think that many athletes get because you have so many different uh, ways that you're looking at this stuff. So let's let's just start by setting the stage here. Give me both your academic bio and then a little bit about you as an athlete. Okay, so my academic bio, University of Michigan through and through. Um, I did my undergrad in kinesiology there and then I stayed to do my master of public health in behavioral health. And then I fell in love with research, kind of going through my own health journey and all those things we can get into more later. And I realized I really needed a PhD to be able to do my own research, do my own data analysis. So I stayed and did my PhD in epidemiology at Michigan um, and then did a quick 
one year stint at a postdoc at NYU, one year at a women's health tech company. Now I work for Emory University in their women's health department as their epidemiologist. Um, and that's what I'm doing now. So that's my academic spiel. And then, oh man, my athletic spiel is, you know, was an athlete pretty much since I could crawl, walk, um, really did everything from cross country soccer. I was the kicker on our high school football team. Then I was on the, Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Like really everything, um, was on the rowing team in college for three of my four years. And then more recently have been, um, got into road, road biking, cycling, focusing on crate racing, you know, very amateur there, but it's been a really fun competitive outlet as I approach 30 and still have that strong drive to train and compete in something. Hmm. So, um, have really found a great community with that here in Asheville, North Carolina, where I live. I love it. I love it. Now why crits? Because like Asheville, you've got, you've got gravel, you've got mountain bike, you've got road. I know, you know, I tried, I tried the mountain bike thing, just didn't love it. I, I always had a road bike and I would, you know, ride my bike once in a while, but it never was something I focused on. And then once I got here, cycling is such a big thing and it's very competitive. So you're kind of around people who love bikes, cycling, everything. Um, I just really like road biking. I like to feel fast and flat. So that's why I like crits because it's very hilly and mountainous around here. I don't love climbing mountains, Molly. You know, I just don't, I don't love it. And so when I found out what crit racing was, didn't even know what that was till about a year ago. Um, I loved that like really fast and flat, quick race nature of it. And so this year that's what I have like focused on in training and it's fun to do. I love doing like sprint training and doing more like neuromuscular training stuff. I just find it really fun. Um, and I would say I'm like on the stronger side for an endurance athlete. I've always lifted weights my whole life. And so I wanted to see how that would transfer into like more power and sprint type races um, versus like long road mountainous. Mm-hmm. Not really as interesting to me. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I imagine also, you know, before we hit record, we were talking about, you were mentioning just having that competitive drive. And I think crits really lend themselves to the competitive drive because the mm-hmm. whole race is a competition, right? Like every corner yeah. is a competition. Mm-hmm. There's always something happening where it's on the road a lot of the time you're just kind of out there for like four or five hours before it really becomes a competition, or at least that was my experience, especially in women's cycling, when you have small packs, so you don't really have as many attacks going up the road, unfortunately, or like moves to cover. Yeah, yeah that's true. And it's like a, especially, you know, cat three, four, five, it's like a 30 minute race time. So mm-hmm. the whole time you're basically, you have to be so hyper-focused. It's like, okay, don't wreck don't slide out on a corner and like stay on someone's wheel but not too close like it's especially when you're new to racing there's so much like hyper focus that I feel like I have to have and that's like exciting to me Mm -hmm. yeah versus like a road race where it's like okay stay with the pack two hours go by okay still with the pack like it's hard and it's grueling but it's a different type of like mental game I think Mm -hmm. um and so I've been enjoying the crit type of mental game lately but I, I still, I've only done like a handful of races, so I'm excited to do more. Nice. And do you feel like all of the weightlifting and stuff actually does lend itself to power? Yeah, I do. I mean, 
it's it's kind of funny because last year I did this local race. It's called the Ring of Fire in Asheville. People who are local will know, <laughs> know what I'm talking about. But I couldn't, I had never sprinted on a bike. I was like in last place last year. Didn't know how to sprint. Didn't know there was such a game to it. And then this year, actually training for sprinting and like learning how to sprint and doing well in the, in this local race, it's like, okay, I see how things are transferring, but it's also like, there is something to like learning how to sprint, not just like getting on your bike and trying to sprint. And so there's cycling is so complex. (laughs) It really is. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much to it. Um, yeah, but I, I've always loved strength training. I like feeling strong. I like picking up a barbell it's like one of the most empowering feelings for me is like deadlifting and you know doing front squats and stuff like that it just like nothing really can give me that same feeling to be honest so I completely concur I'm I'm right Mm -hmm. there with you Um, so you've you've really focused on women in a lot of your research Mm -hmm. and particularly women athletes but with the master's in public health I'm actually really curious about like Mm -hmm. where sort of like the line between like sort of public health and then like recreational athletes and women like these are all kind of like this weird Venn (laughs) diagram of like overlapping slices I mean how do you kind of like think about all of those things Yeah, I've always kind of been a black sheep, like I don't really fit into boxes well. And so I was really lucky, I think, to be so supported at Michigan in my graduate research and like coming from kinesiology background, but being interested in more like the preventative side of health instead of the treatment side of health. So that's, you know, the public health aspect. But then the sports science aspect was like what I was really passionate about merging public health with the clinical side, with sports science research, because I felt that in my own, not to be cliche, but like journey through being a college athlete, having disordered eating, having amenorrhea, having low energy availability, I didn't have the resources that I felt that I needed to understand what was going on or understand like the complexities of how the female body reacts to to the, you know, stress of physical exercise and training hard. And I just felt like there was a huge gap there. And so when I wanted to stay in public health, I was really supported in bringing those worlds together and making like a committee of mentors that fit all of those aspects. And it didn't really matter what department I was a part of, because at the end of the day, like it did have a public health lens on my research, which is like, let's prevent this. Can I swear on this podcast? Let's yes, you can. Go happening. for it. Okay. Let's prevent this shit from happening to the next generations of young women that come into sport. And 100%. That's what I was like motivated by. And I really felt like I had the best team ever to help me like execute that research. And they didn't, it didn't matter which department I was a part of. They were all on board because they all also had some like connection to the topic. Mm-hmm. Um, whether personal or like just topic wise, like their interests. So it was, I had an amazing PhD experience, which not everybody can say. And I feel so lucky about that um, because I was just like so supported and felt so like encouraged and motivated to do my work. Oh, I love that. That is very good to hear. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting because I think what you're doing makes me really excited because I've always felt like sports research really focuses on performance. So you have like these, you know, eight 
collegiate male cyclists do this experiment and we see like how it impacts like their racing. And then we have like, you know, the, the very basic public health over here where we're talking about like, you know, cancer prevention or whatever. And then, I mean, we have women over here and we're just completely ignoring them entirely. Um, (laughs) But there's, it's so rare. And you mentioned your, your collegiate experience. It's so rare that we're talking about how do we improve performance while also making sure that we are maintaining health and really thinking towards the longevity aspect because most of us aren't going to go on to become professional athletes we're going to go on to exist as humans hopefully for you know Mm -hmm. several more decades (laughs) exactly yeah and that's exactly you know that's one of my angles right is that most college athletes high school right from high school to college right it's a very low percentage that go to college and play sport you know either with a scholarship or without it's very low and then it's an incredibly tiny percent it's less than two percent i believe that go from college to any type of professional sport making any any type of money for being in sport post-college it's like less than two percent of that already very small population that was collegiate and so there's that angle of why are we not focusing more on athlete physical and mental health because the vast majority you know, their performance period of their life is ending at age 22, very young. It doesn't feel young to them. They feel like it's their whole world, which is okay. But that's why other people like coaches, trainers, athletic department, like all these people need to have that in mind, but they don't because they care more about performance and money and all these things. But then there's the other side of it that even if you do aspire to be an athlete into your forties, whatever, keep training keep competing which a lot of people do especially in you know running and these other sports where like men and women can't peak post-college you Mm -hmm. know they peak in their mid-30s women can peak at such an amazing like late 30s age in a lot of endurance sports but if you don't take care of yourself in high school in college you're not gonna make it to be competing when you could be peaking later in your life because your body's not gonna have the, I mean, your bone health's not going to be supported, your metabolic health's not going to be supported, and you're probably just going to be burnt out because your body has been running on empty um, and in survival mode for a decade or more. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're you're not going to be able to have that full athletic career that you want. So, yeah. And even if we look at it from the later age, you know, even if you are like in your 30s, 40s, 50s now, and you're like reading the, you know, latest performance science, you're reading about some like 25 year old guys on bikes. That's not applicable to your experience. Like, maybe there's like bits and pieces of it, you know, like, if we're talking about like intensity and training and all that kind of stuff. But it's not necessarily taking into account that you're also working 70 hours a week, and you have three kids at home. And like, you know, you're not having a team chef cook for you or any of that stuff. But we still like have this weird mentality mm-hmm. of like, oh, I should train like a Tour de France pro, even though I'm a, you know, 35 year old woman who has no intention of racing the tour. Right. And that's kind of, you know, what comes up a lot in the research side of things is like athlete temperament or athlete personality type, which in endurance, we see very consistently that it's like the type A high achieving perfectionist type of um, person that thrives in that type of training and that type of sport. And so with that personality type comes that like high level of comparison to other people. 
again, like I said, this perfectionist tendency to do the most, even if your lifestyle does not support you training 25 hours a week. And that mentality that like, well, if they can do it, I can do it. Or I should be doing more when if you're not supporting your body and recovering and have your lifestyle set up to like recover from that type of training, you're not even going to be getting the benefit of it. And you're just going to be, you know, tearing your body down really. Mm-hmm. Um, and that'll catch it, it. It catches up. And that's the big thing. Yeah. It's and that's the kind of catch up. That's kind of the story of all, you know, all of this, the research I've done, my personal experience is like your body is so resilient and you can, you can perform well and you can do well for, you know, X amount of time. It's typically less than two years. And then you will crash, get injured, suffer really poor mental health, all these things, but your body will try to put up with it for a while. And so that's where people get into trouble. And then their peers see that, well, you know, so-and-so is restricting, they're weighing themselves every day, they're doing extra training, I should too. Mm-hmm. And then the inevitable crash happens. And then it can take years to get out of that, um, truly, for your body to like physiologically recover back to a place where it can train and can yeah. eat at that level again. Um, but nobody talked about that. Oh my gosh. And the kind of horrific part about this is exactly that cycle you just described playing out on social media over and over and over again. Right. There's, I can't even tell, like, there's probably like 10 Instagram started in what 2013. So we have like 10, 10 examples of like one female athlete after another coming out and saying like, I had this horrific, like disordered eating thing. Like, even though I was Mm -hmm. like, even though I was winning races and all this, like this was going horribly wrong. And then the next person sees it and is already like halfway down that path because they've been kind of in that person's footsteps. And in a year, they're going to be the ones coming out with the post that's saying I had this horrific disordered eating, but then there's another and another. That's, that's so true. And I think often though, when it's happening kind of at the community or team level, I hate to say it like this, but the turnover is so high that sometimes you don't even see that that woman who is restricting and overtraining and and performing well, you don't see her drop off. No. Because it's the next year there's some new phenom that shows up in town or on the team and it's new and exciting. That woman who's now burnt out and crashing and injured is off the radar and so now it's you know that's how our society works in social media so it's like we don't even always get the full picture of like this behavior led to this outcome because that next girl is the highlight this year oh you're so right yeah very scary so yes if you see these like the reason the drop-off rate is so high is largely because of a lot of these you know societal like pushes and all of these like things that have been going on for so long like how do we even get out like I mean this is not a philosophical podcast so we won't get into like how to dig ourselves out of this entirely but let's talk about what healthy actually means because I mean you focus on women athletes and I thought this would be a really interesting kind of starting point because I don't think we've ever really defined it on this podcast I can't even think about defining it anywhere that I've really seen what is a healthy female athlete (laughs) What does that look like? Yeah. I mean, right. The 
the short answer is it's so individual. It depends. Right. But I think broadly, I always say if I have a researcher on and they don't say it depends at least once in an episode, I throw the episode out. Throw it away. Like, I don't yeah. trust you. Yeah. Well, good. I guess I'm trustworthy. But I think largely what gets missed in the like athlete space is that a marker of health, which includes things like good recovery, good nutrition, good mental health is just a state of energy, like actually having energy to live your life outside of training. I think that young athletes need to know that feeling completely drained and just like so deeply tired all the time does not make you a martyr of your sport. It does not make you like better than your teammates. It's it's a sign that your body is not getting the energy and sleep and recovery and probably largely the fuel that it needs. Because really we need to have energy outside of training to live our lives. And I think that piece gets missed, but that's such an important piece to mental health too. And if I an athlete that. doesn't have good good mental health, they're not going to perform well, no matter how like in good form they are, as they say in cycling, right? Like your form, but it's not going to matter long-term mm-hmm. again, maybe sh- where we get in trouble again, is that short-term where it's like the resiliency of your body is showing up for you. Yeah. But no, for sure. Most, most people want to perform past one season, like realistically. Um, and that's where this long you know, public health lens of like longevity fits into all of this that we're talking about and why I chose public health, because we're looking at this preventative and like longevity aspect that gets missed a lot in like a traditional, like maybe medical lens, um, Mm -hmm. which is a whole nother topic, but I'll stop there for now. So I don't go too far down. No, I think that energy one is just so good. I remember there was, you know, probably five years for me when I was looking back. I'm like, of course I was overtraining. Why did I ever think that wasn't overtraining? And it'd be like 8 p.m. And I'd be like about to, you know, sit down and like watch like a show with my then boyfriend. I don't think I could stay up for more than 10 minutes before I was completely just passed out. Poor guy. Uh, To his credit. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> put up with that for a long time. Um, and I think back at that now and I'm like, oh my God, like I'm 15 years older and I can watch a movie and not fall asleep. Like how amazing is that? And it's funny thinking about that as like a marker of health, but I think it absolutely is. I can function yeah. as a person. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I will say, I think this doesn't get talked about very much either, but like libido and sex drive is a huge, huge marker of hormonal health and you know ties back to like are you um are your hormones healthy are do you have enough energy to have that part of your physiologic system functioning and kicking in and I think that is something that even young athletes need to know and that's one of the biggest markers of low energy availability in male athletes but nobody wants to talk about that mm-hmm. and it's important like I don't think we need you don't sex does not always have to be sexualized and like physiology is physiology and that's a huge marker for men is libido and sex drive and for women it's libido as well but we also have the menstrual cycle to kind of tell us how our hormones are doing men have libido and things like that to tell them how their hormones are functioning so mm-hmm. that gets left out a lot because of like shame or whatever that our society puts around 
you know, sexualizing (laughs) (laughs) humans. But I think that is something that older athletes notice more perhaps as well, because they're already kind of at a decline sometimes in terms of their libido. But when they Mm -hmm. notice like a complete flat line, that usually means that your hormones are not happy with the amount of stress that's on your body from Mm -hmm. training, under eating, all these things. Um, And just like daily stress of life. But I love that. It's so funny. I was listening to a while ago, I forget which podcast it was, but it was like talking about sex and athletes, but they were actually talking about like the positives where they're like exercise, like makes you feel really good. And then you like want to have sex. And I was like, clearly this person does not know endurance athletes because most of the endurance athletes I know are very, very tired. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, I think that's a really great distinction too, is that kind of the the distinction between like an everyday exerciser Mm -hmm. and somebody who's training for an endurance event. It's a much different stress on the body. And so I would say, yeah, for like the everyday person who's like going to the gym and doing like a 40 minute workout. Amazing. You probably will feel that difference in a positive way. But if you're training 15 hours a week and not recovering well, and not fueling well, like, no, <laughs> no, yeah, your testosterone's exactly. going to tank, like everything. Um, yeah. and, and like testosterone for women is also really important. People don't talk about that enough. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it all ties back to, you know, fueling, recovering hormone health. Yep. These, and but- hormone health. I'm actually really psyched you brought up libido because yeah. we talk about the menstrual cycle all the time, but there's mm-hmm. so many women who are either taking hormonal birth control or are yeah. on an even like an IUD. Um, you know, some of the IUDs you still get like a normal cycle. Some of them you're just not really bleeding. Uh, some people mm-hmm. just you know either don't have a normal period or they haven't gotten it back yet if they're trying to get it back. So I think in those mm-hmm. cases, sex drive actually is a really good sort of like red flag coming up that's saying like something's off, even if you you know like you can't tell if you have a normal menstrual cycle or not. Yeah. And I mean, this is truly my favorite topic ever is talking about (laughs) menstrual cycle birth control as it relates to athletes or just in general, because I just find it so fascinating. Um, And yeah, I, you know, I hear a lot of athletes talking about, you know, being on birth control or not, how does it affect performance? This, that idea of like cycle syncing with your training, which is a whole nother rabbit hole we could go down. And we will. um, Okay, great. (laughs) I I might jump into it, but um, yeah, there's not, you know, the research that we have now, and I'm very pro birth control, pro whatever you want to do with your body, because people will say, well, there might be like a very minor negative impact of taking hormonal birth control on performance. You know, what has a really high negative impact on performance. Yeah. (laughs) Getting pregnant when you weren't trying to. Yeah. That has a really negative. So I'm very pro you do what's best for you. Um, the research is very inconclusive on any negative outcomes that relate to performance. Um, And yeah, I think like the peace of mind of knowing that you're on birth control, if that's where you want to be in life is going to also have negative psychological effects. So I'm not ever going to say don't take hormones, like do whatever is best for your body. That's your choice. Um, I have a hormonal IUD, best thing ever, Um, you know, huge huge benefit. Um, and so, yeah, I think what we know so far is that birth control has like a negligible effect on anything related to performance. The menstrual cycle in general, 
their, you know, their research is still mixed and it's still so new. And that's why there's a lot of debate on the internet and on Instagram about this idea of like training with your cycle. Okay. First of all, you can probably tell from just my tone right there. That I was like, I, I love that you stepped onto a soapbox here. <laughs> yeah. This is, I'm here this is my soapbox because there's just so much misinformation that confuses women. And like the last thing we need is to be more confused about our bodies and more confused about training and more confused about eating and fueling our bodies. That's the last thing we need. But there are so many people who are profiting off of that idea mm -hmm. of like, follow this plan and this cycle and do this for your body. And I think like, firstly, most women are interested in this idea of cycle syncing, but either they're on birth control, they are on and off of birth control. And like, you can't apply this idea of cycle syncing to a hormone induced cycle, which means if you're on birth control, that contains hormones. An IUD, the pill, you know, like the copper IUD is not hormonal. So you could, you know, fit the natural menstrual cycle there but a lot of women don't understand that very first step if you're on hormones cycle syncing ideas don't apply to your cycle and that's okay because you have a hormone induced cycle and you may have a bleed induced by hormones and that's a withdrawal bleed it's not a period and that's okay it's just let's like talk about the language there so we're all on the same page and we can learn about our bodies I really believe in like learning okay. about the cycle as empowerment. It is so incredible to me, like how hard it has been for me to find that information about the hormonal IUD. Nowhere. Yeah. Like I scoured the internet for the last couple of years. And I think mm. now there's a, like a little bit more, but I just kept trying to be like, do I even have a cycle with a hormonal IUD? Like, what does that mean? Yeah. Like, just nothing yeah. was out there. So it's, it's just like wild to me that we're like literally having this like device inside yeah. of us and, yeah uh -huh. and we don't know <laughs> yeah and again the thing with the hormonal IUDs is it depends <laughs> like are you having a cycle it depends with the Mirena the Kyla the Skylina Kyla either way anyway the three smaller hormonal IUDs you can still ovulate but it depends <laughs> it's not a hundred percent that women who get these IDs are ovulating we hope that they are for the benefit of our health, but it's individual. It depends on your body, how your body adapts to mm -hmm. the IUD. Um, but I mean, we can get into that a little bit too, kind of the differences between, you know, different types of hormonal birth control and how it may or may not affect performance. There's, again, the research is up in the air because there's not a lot of money and funding that goes towards looking at these effects, especially with female athletes, unsurprisingly. very upsetting when you think about the fact that, you know, 50% of the population is women and a lot of us are trying to figure out how to, you know, control some of this stuff. So it's a little stressful when you're like, wait, we don't know this? This seems like a thing we should definitely know by now. It seems like a thing we should have known a decade or more ago. I think like my very quick version of this would be, you know, hormonal IUDs, the ones like Mirena, the fact that you can potentially ovulate on it. I, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, but I have a PhD in this topic, would recommend something like that because we want ovulation to be occurring for the release of hormones around ovulation. And those hormones that are released are beneficial to performance, recovery, things like that. 
-hmm. The pill, especially the combined pill, which means it has estrogen and progesterone in it, you're not going to be ovulating. If it works for you, amazing. But you might notice some different side effects on something like a combined pill that may interfere with how you feel around training, how you feel, um, you know, when you're competing. So if you're trying to make a decision on, you know, what type of birth control to go forward with, there's like a very quick, you know, this or that option. Again, the pill and IUD are very different. One's a long acting contraceptive. We call them LARCs. That's the IUD because they're semi-permanent, right? The pill is a daily, you know, daily pill that you have to take. So it's a different animal in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So I'm a big fan of set it and forget it personally. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Don't have to remember. I already have to remember to take my Lexapro every day. I don't need to remember to take anything else. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Now here's a question. How do we know if we're ovulating? So I was, we talked about this, I think last time we chatted, I had gotten an aura ring that I was like testing as a wearable for sport, but it actually does body temperature. And it was fascinating to me that I actually did have like a standard fluctuation pretty much every four weeks. And I was like, oh, that's great. I did not know that that was like a thing that would be happening for me. That's pretty exciting. <laughs> yes, I have I have not tried the aura ring, but I've heard great things. So ovulation, it, it's going to depend on the person, right? There's really two things we look for, which is basal body temperature change, which is what you're speaking to, and then cervical mucus. So those are the two things we're looking for. But I think what people don't always understand with the temperature change aspect is it is, it is minuscule. So you really want to make sure that if if you're using temperature tracking as a way to prevent pregnancy, that you want to be using a device that's like FDA approved, like um, the Daisy and things like that. That is an excellent if, caveat. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Just want to make sure because you can buy like specific thermometers that are supposed to measure that. But I wouldn't trust it if you're using it as your only form of contraceptives. Anyway, as a side note just want to put that out there very important the change in yeah that the change in temperature that we're looking for is like less than one degree so Mm -hmm. you really need to be very um you know specific if you're using that as like a way to gauge ovulation and things like that but then cervical mucus that's more like bio individual however i will say when women have either irregular or have missed their menstrual cycle for a long time and they regain a healthy menstrual cycle where they are ovulating. A lot of women are very shocked at the amount of cervical mucus that their body has around ovulation. And so that can be very jarring for people who have had irregular cycles for most of their like young adult to adult life. And then they want to prioritize having a menstrual cycle, maybe for fertility reasons or otherwise. Um, And so without going too far down that route, you will know if your body is ovulating based on cervical mucus output. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I love it. I'm so glad we're talking about this. And I mean, you just said the kind of like buzzword here, which is like fertility. And I think I'm so happy sure. that people are actually now kind of speaking about the menstrual cycle outside of just for, for t- like for fertility. Yeah. Because- because for a long time, it didn't occur to me that I should even care about my menstrual cycle because I have no intention of getting pregnant. I'm actively avoiding that. 
Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Like now to realize like, oh, hey, this matters for my overall health, not just my ability to produce a small person. Um, I think that's just like, it's so important. And I'm so glad we're talking about it. Yeah. More. Yeah. I think that's a huge shift of like our generation is this understanding that the menstrual cycle is the fifth vital sign, right? There's like books that are titled that now there's like much more of this understanding that for women, if your menstrual cycle is not working, quote unquote, as expected, that is a sign that your body is not functioning as it should be. And like, there's like some root cause issue, not to go all functional medicine on you, but like some root cause that is telling, that is like a very clear signal that something is off. Your hormones are not responding as they should be. Um, And it's like a really like amazing sign that we have as women that is like a cost-free evaluation (laughs) monthly Mm -hmm. of like what is the state of my body essentially in terms of its health and um there's just so many aspects that we never learn growing up related to our health that is directly tied to our menstrual cycle like our bone health our cognitive function our mental health are like literally everything if if anybody wants to look up the reds model right the relative energy deficiency and sport model you can see like the 10 major aspects that are affected by our hormonal state and like the number one sign that something is off is a lack of menstrual cycle Mm -hmm. um and truly once your menstrual cycle becomes irregular for like more than three to six months it's a it's a quite an undertaking to get it back to quote unquote, like normal. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think that most people understand that it's, that's why it's so important to address it right away. Mm -hmm. Yes. And again, whether or not you have any intention of trying to have a baby, like this is just talking about health. Um, Right. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. uh, This has nothing to do with pregnancy. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned the uh, the big elephant in the endurance sport room of Reds. Yeah. So yeah. you know, for the women who are maybe either on hormonal birth control, so we're not going to know if their you know cycle is happening because they're that's just not a thing. Um, mm-hmm. Or you know, like even uh, we can kind of speak to this broadly and even add men in. What are some of the signs and symptoms that we should be looking for? Because I think we always talk about the missing period, but that is such a yeah. small portion of the population that is going to have that sign. So I'm like, I think we need to talk about what the other signs and symptoms are, because otherwise I think there's so many people out there and I'll include myself in this that have definitely been in this, like veering very close to reds, if not in it, but have no idea because we're like, well, I like, I don't know if I don't have a period. I've had an IUD for, you know, 10 years, or I've been on hormonal birth control for 15. So yeah, that's my soapbox. (laughs) No, I mean, it is tough. And like, I want to emphasize that reds and lower energy availability is, you know, very, very common if you have disordered eating or an eating disorder, but it, it, you don't have to have disordered eating to have reds or low energy availability. And for kind of the two camps I'll talk about, right. The more like disordered eating camp, a lot of times, you know, huge signs will be like decreasing performance over the season. Right. Or you're at a, point in your training block where you should be peaking but your performance is actually going down and like you're not hitting the the goals that you set for the season based on your training 
there's a there's a big sign there that points to under fueling, under recovery. And most coaches will probably be able to identify that. They might not have the language to be like, hey, you're probably in a state of low energy availability and your hormones are tanking. They might just be like, you need to rest. Like what is happening here? You know? Mm-hmm. But I think I think like right going back to like a major sign is being like really fatigued, really achy, unable to live your life outside of training. Those are huge signs of reds. I mean, and and a huge part of that too is mood. Mood is highly affected by energy intake. And I think people, you know, don't always recognize that like anxiety is really triggered by your body not having enough energy because then your brain doesn't have enough energy and it goes through this looping cycle. I mean, people get like OCD like tendencies when they're really under fueled because their brain does not have enough sugar to like work as needed. So it's a huge driver of poor mental health in athletes. Or if you just feel really cranky and irritable all the time, you probably just need to eat a snack. Like, but you know, over time, these things build on themselves. And then we see kind of the more chronic health outcomes like injury. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a huge thing for, for cyclists too. I mean, more so in runners because of like the impact, like the high impact nature of the sport. Cycling mm-hmm. is much more low impact. Um, But, you know, even in cyclists, like. Yeah, I actually always worry about cyclists with this because I do think like cyclists are very much prone to red ass because they are doing yeah. much bigger hours often than runners. Like runners are kind of limited yeah. by like, how much our legs can, can handle. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And like, we're going to get injured much faster because of the high impact. Cyclists can do way more hours and not have an injury. Like they'll have a performance decline, but they're yeah. not like, they're not nearly as likely to actually have an injury that forces them to even like to stop and then almost recover from it. Yeah. And I think not to jump ahead if we haven't finished that last thought yet, but there's, there's this aspect of you know, okay, then how do we avoid reds with this yeah. like, huge training volume and these really long training rides and like five hours on the weekend on a Saturday morning. And there's an aspect to like intra training fueling that was a whole new world to me with cycling. And I don't ride nearly as much as some people, but there's like a, a pretty interesting science to, you know, um, fueling during your ride you know not just before and after but during um and I think a lot of newer cyclists don't quite understand the utility of chugging 60 grams of carbohydrate every 30 minutes or whatever it is maybe not that much for everybody but for some people absolutely like you know we'll try to get 100 grams of carbs an hour and I don't think that a lot of people I mean especially if you have any kind of like disordered eating or just like hypervigilance to like sugar and carb intake buy into that right away until they notice that like I'm bonking after 40 miles and my friends are like just chilling like they're just they're doing great because their bottles are full of carbohydrate it is such Um, a hard pill to swallow and I mean I even struggle with it you know 15 years into like mm -hmm. you know training pretty seriously I still go out and I'm like oh, you're a dummy. You should have fueled during that one. Or like, why do you still mm-hmm. have half a flask of gel left? Like this isn't, you meant to finish this and refill it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. What are you doing? It's yeah. so hard. <laughs> it's really hard. I mean, especially, I mean, 
this is kind of a different tangent, but as female athletes, the vast majority of us grow up with some type of diet culture influence on us. Yes. Which for our generation was largely focused on don't eat many carbs, don't eat sugar. 1500 calories a day. (laughs) Yeah. Which is not even enough for a toddler um quite quite literally a four-year-old needs over 1500 calories a day so that gives you some perspective but a lot of us grow up with that mentality of like do not eat food unless you're really hungry and don't eat carbs and then you enter this endurance sport world where it's like carbs are queen carbs are your life force your performance force like if you don't consume enough carbs, you will not perform well, period. You will not recover, period. You will burn out. And so there's a lot of like psychological effort. I think a lot of us go through to unlearn that like Gatorade is bad. No, it's not like sugar is bad. Not when your body uses it immediately during an endurance ride. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of elements that we have to unlearn as women who want to perform well and it's such an interesting mental hurdle like mental hurdles to get over because we again let's go back to the stereotype of an endurance athlete that's a woman type a perfectionist high achieving we want to be the best at our sport but also we want to be the best in our nutrition and the best in our physique and we want to fit this ideal woman and so society teaches us how to do that but it's actually all bullshit. And so we have to unlearn that. We have to challenge those like preconceived ideas that we had of like how to be healthy, how to be fit, how to be a female, and then how to be an athlete on top of being a woman in the world. And that takes a lot of like mental gymnastics to be like, I'm going to drink the sugar drink Mm -hmm. and I'm still making a good nutritional choice for my body because this is actually the best thing for me in this scenario. Yes. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, and I mean, I think I've also struggled not just with all of that, but then also even with like the, ooh, but if I eat in the last like chunk of my run, like I was going to have this big thing when I got home and now like, eh, like I kind of want to get home hungry. And it's taken so long for me to get past that. And I'll say I, I still fall victim to when I know there's yeah. cinnamon rolls and I would like to have three of them. Um, mm-hmm. so like, no, yeah. just, just keep fueling and you can still have your damn cinnamon roll. It's fine. <laughs> like, right. You just ran 20 yeah. miles. You're going to be okay. Um, and I think that that's something that that's not even just women. Like I know so many guys that, you know, it's you, you train to eat. You're like talking about the post-ride meal during the ride and kind of skipping fueling. Yeah. You know that's coming. Yeah. And something this year I've kind of tried to kind of dive into more both, you know, in like reading about the topic and like implementing it in my own, you know, training is just this idea that if you fuel your training well, meaning like you do have that last gel, you do have that last bottle of Gatorade, whatever it is, like you're actually setting up your body like to metabolically function better around your training and like use that fuel better so that it's you're using it immediately you're not storing that last gel like you know Mm -hmm. in your body it's being used and so like you're training your body to like adapt to that fuel better and then that's going to help your performance your recovery probably your physique 
you know, which again, we can't just pretend like that's not what a lot of us are interested in. I could sit here and be like, it doesn't matter. But like, that's a lie. Like it, for some people, if it doesn't matter, amazing. You, you do like incredible. But for the vast majority of us, that's in the back of our mind somewhere. It's so, I mean, really, it's why most of us got into it. Like, if you ask me, like, why I actually got into triathlon, it was definitely like, well, I gained a few pounds in college and mm-hmm. wanted to not have them anymore. Like, and yeah. that's, I think, a pretty common story. So I don't like, I, I think we do a disservice when we pretend that that's not something that anyone is interested in. <laughs> Yeah, like you said, and- if you're not, then I'm, I'm extremely jealous. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to have the name of your therapist, please. Yeah, right. <laughs> Can they please come yeah. on the show? <laughs> yeah, but it's like, right, most of us grew up in a way where we do have that competitive drive, but also perhaps like, you know, we're women in this world and we do care about how we like look. And that's, I don't know, I've you're you know, gone back and forth on <laughs> talking about that but I'm at a place now where it's like yeah you know I've worked really hard to you know I don't want to say fully heal my relationship with food and body image but like I'm at such a better place than I was five years ago six years ago and you know life it fluctuates right now it's like yeah I would love to train really hard and like see the benefits of it and perform well so exactly Exactly. Can't can't, pre- can't pretend that. Yeah, they're not all intertwined. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that we got that in there because I think that's just something that is just very important. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Shifting focus slightly, and probably not even shifting it yeah. that much because it probably relates to one of these things. You have gotten sure. to be involved in quite a few different research projects over the years. What's been like the most interesting one for you? Like what was the one that you're just like, yes, I'm so excited to work on this. Yeah, I think more like the most rewarding one. Like I'm trained as an epidemiologist, but I did a lot of qualitative research too, which is like interview-based research. And really doing doing the interview research with the the study I was doing was with all collegiate NCAA D1 female runners that was the most just motivating, heart-wrenching, like sickening, but inspiring work I've ever done because these women just like had these stories and these feelings just like bottled up and they trusted me and shared them with me. And I just felt so like honored really to have them feel so trusting in me to give me that piece of their life and share that piece of their life with me. And a lot of it was really challenging for them to share. And they were so vulnerable because everybody in this study had a history of disordered eating and or like low energy availability. So not everybody had disordered eating, but you know, whether they thought they did or not, most of them did, um, whether they just disclosed it, I should say, or not, most of them did. Um, and just sharing with me like what it what it's like to be you know a female athlete and have the pressure of you know body image and being perfect and performing well but also looking a certain way and how their coaches influence that and their teammates influence that um just like really powerful stories and that paper is published so anybody can go read it if they want to it's in um, BJSM 
and I nice. can I can share it. You can link it if you want. Yeah, to, we'll but, link to that in the show um, notes for sure. So what was the what what was the finding? What was the sort of conclusion of the mm-hmm. study? Other than more research is needed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of it was a lot of it pointed back to college coaches, um, and just like the culture of college athletics and the drive for performance and not necessarily with a lot of respect to athlete health and, you know, physical and mental health. Um, That was huge, but also just, you know, like we talked about earlier, this society and this diet culture mentality that we grow up with. Um, And, you know, especially for female runners, that idea that the lighter you are, the faster you are and how that really wreaked havoc on a lot of them. And they thought that, you know, if they just lost weight, they'd be faster. And, they were for one season and then they weren't, you know, Mm -hmm. so kind of, we talked about that earlier as well, but that was a huge theme too, is the short-term effects of weight loss, but the long-term consequences. Ooh, I love that. And I think that's becoming so much more of a thing in cycling right now. I'm actually working on a a story, just kind of going back to like power to weight or like looking at power to weight because, you know, and this is no fault of Zwift, but to use Zwift, you have to input your weight so they can get your power to weight because that determines which category you're racing in. So suddenly it used to be that we just knew, you know, what the pro racers, we sort of knew their power to weights. And now we're obsessed with our own power to weights. Like we know it to like, you know, the like third place in the decimal here. (laughs) Like it's so bad. And I think, you know, so many people think that the, the way to do it or, you know, the way to improve power to weight is to drop the weight. And, mm-hmm. you know, trying to kind of like say, what if we just raise the power? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tends to be my, my take on it. And it's, it's been really interesting kind of like dealing with that much more often because running, you're right. Like there's mm-hmm. always been the like very small body type, like very, very lean cycling men, I would say have always been on the very lean, but I never noticed it as much in women until mm-hmm. like we got really obsessed with power to weight. And now it seems like everyone is very focused on it. Yeah. Yeah. I hate that. <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, personally, I don't, I don't weigh myself. I don't get on a scale. Oh, when no. I go to the doctor, I don't look at the scale. I turn me my too. back and say, please don't tell me. I'm not interested. It's not a number that brings me any um, clarity in life or <laughs> like anything because I'm like much more of a muscular build. And Ditto. <laughs> growing up, I had like trauma around getting on a scale because I always felt like so just, like heartbroken by the whole experience um so I don't know my power to weight ratio because I don't know my weight (laughs) like I don't care to know but I think it is a problem if we get into this like yeah habit and cycling of always asking people their power to weight ratio and all this stuff because mm, I mean I have friends even in you know my cycling community here who weigh themselves all the time for that same reason mostly men, to be honest, from what I'm aware of. Um, They're really obsessed with data a lot of the time, which so am I, but um, to each their own. And they want to know kind of like weekly what it, you know, Mm -hmm. what that updated number looks like, which really doesn't serve you because um, at the end of the day, like often when you lose weight, you lose power. So that you have to think about the numerator and the denominator, people. Like do your basic math function. (laughs) A lot of times the correlation between power and weight is inverse. Like we don't see that typically if you lose a bunch of weight, your power is going to go up. That's not really how it works. 
Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I think there's just thinking about that. Your power is probably going to go down and then you lost weight and your power to weight ratio is the same because they both decreased. Yeah. Let's just yeah. do some <laughs> basic calculation. I don't know. That gets lost on men a lot though. I mean, I'm not here to stereotype, but I'm going to <laughs> just, they want to, and for men, it, you know, typically is easier to lose weight because they don't have the hormonal fluctuations that we do anyway. It's true. Yeah. I've they said like too much on that. Nope. Topic. Nope. It's one of those, like they cut out, like we always say, like they, they cut out yeah. beer for a week and yes. suddenly they're yes. five pounds lighter where he's like, it would take me years to do that. Yeah. <laughs> like this doesn't feel fair. <laughs> yeah. Like my boyfriend could cut out beer for a week and he probably, yeah, it's the same thing. Like I suddenly don't even... back and you're like, how, how did that even, yeah. like, where, what, what? <laughs> I don't even drink beer. So for me, it'd be cutting out like my whole lunch. No, like, I'm not, yeah. yeah, like, it's not gonna happen. Like, yeah, I know. It's, yeah, yeah, we can't compare. Yeah, there's no direct comparison there. But exactly, which gets into this, you know, kind of back to what we started with, which is we need mm-hmm. more research on women, we need oh, more yeah. focus on women, we need to not assume that we can train and eat and all of that the exact same as men. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I think, yeah, where we where we come back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and, my gosh. You know, the, argu- the argument's always that women are much more complex to research, and we are, but I think that's really not a good excuse. Like, no, that's a terrible complex. excuse. That sort of it's means we need excuse. more. <laughs> like, yeah, how does that mean we just don't do it? That means we do more of it. Exactly. You would think that that would equate to more, yeah, more money goes towards it, more time goes towards it more people can pursue that work because there's more openings to, you know, do that type of research, but instead it's the opposite. So. So weird. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Well, I could talk to you all day and I think we're probably mm-hmm. going to have yeah. to do a round two at some point here, <laughs> Okay. Um, right. but let everyone know where they can find you and sort of like, you know, follow along with your, your racing and, you know, keep up with oh, any, yeah. any of you have some excellent, uh, I'm not going to call them rants, but you have excellent, like, Uh-oh info on your Instagram where you do kind of get into some of these topics. So people should definitely yeah, check it I, out. I haven't done that in a while. I've been busy with life, but I should get back into it. Um, Instagram is the best place to find me just at Tracy, T-R-A-C-I underscore Carson. Um, and yeah, I don't really have other social media that I really frequent anymore. So Instagram is the best spot. Um, yeah. So find me there. Perfect. Ah, oh, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you want to hear more training, racing, and endurance sport advice, make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at consummateathlete.com for a weekly dose of inspiration and advice straight to your inbox.